Good morning again. If you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. A few weeks ago, I preached and mentioned that I'll be preaching five times between September and December, and that we would be doing a mini-series through the book of Numbers. And so the last time that we were in Numbers, we were in Numbers chapter 6, and we looked at the ironic blessing, the benediction that we know and we say so often here. And so our passage today, Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14, is huge, some close to 80 verses. And so we can't hit everything in this passage, and we can't hit everything in Numbers. And so I was drawn to these two chapters because this chapter is such a pivotal chapter in Israel's history. If you remember back to last time, the thing I said about numbers, that it occurs between the Exodus and before they enter the Promised Land. The 40 years that Israel is wandering in the desert. And so this, here in this chapter, chapter 13, where numbers should have ended... It should have been over with this chapter. You see, they've left Egypt, they've headed to the promised land, and they're at the doorstep of the promised land here in Numbers chapter 13. They've made it to Canaan, and God's with them. He's given them His blessing to go into the land, and that's how it should have gone. They should have gone in, they should have conquered, they should have been there, end of the chapter, close the book. But as we'll see this morning, that's not what happens at all in this chapter And these two chapters, they're really tough. It's a hard one. These are hard passages to preach, hard passages to read. And so I told some friends this week that I was preparing for this sermon that this passage really bothered me, that it it bothered me. Had I I gotten God wrong all this time? But nevertheless, this morning, it's my goal that we would see a warning in how God treats those who rebel against Him, that we also see a hope and how God treats those who rebel against him. And so this is an extremely long passage, like I said, about 78 verses, so I'm going to skip around a bit, but if you'll follow along with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. Numbers 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Skip down to verse 17. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev, up into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And skip down to verse 25. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. 
for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. 
But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys and the seas, turn tomorrow, set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Let's skip down to verse 34. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this, will, surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned... And made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will you not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not with you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up into the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Ends the reading of God's word this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we seek his help to understand it? Father, we confess to you that this is a tough passage. It's one of these times in the Bible that we would just be more comfortable with ignoring. And so, Father, we ask that you show us this morning through this text the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, we ask that you show us what it is that you are wanting to tell your people through this word. So, Father, we ask that you would illumine our minds and illumine our hearts and give us an understanding. Send your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand this passage. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, this December marks 10 years since I graduated from college. And the reason I graduated in December was because I was what was known as a super senior. I took a little victory lap, a fifth-year senior at Southern Miss. And so what most people do in four years, I was able to squeeze into five. And so it didn't have to be that way, though. This was of my own doing. There are two main reasons I graduated late from college, and they both involve pieces of advice that my dad gave me. One I took, one I didn't take. And so the first reason that I graduated late from Southern was I decided to change my major to history. I was watching the History Channel one night and said, that's what I want to major in. Well, my dad said, you can't get a job in that, so you need a major in education as well. And so I did that. And so that added a few extra classes to add on to my education degree. However, the second reason I graduated late is probably more important. It's probably the bigger reason of why I graduated late. And so with my degree, it had a language requirement. And so all throughout high school, I took French. 
I went to Southern, and I also took French. And I got two classes away from being done with French, and I decided I wanted to switch to Latin. And so that meant four more semesters of Latin classes when I was at the doorstep of being done with my language requirement. Once again, my dad gave me some advice. He said, don't do it, just finish French. And I said, I knew better than you, Dad. I want to take Latin. And so I did. I took Latin, and it pushed me back a semester, and it made me graduate late. But in the end, everything worked out well because my first job out of college was a Latin teacher at a high school in Hattiesburg. But the reason why I tell you this story is because I could have graduated on time had I listened to my dad's advice. My dad would have every right in the world to say to me, son, if you would just listen to me, you could have graduated on time. If you would just listen to me. Kids, have you ever heard your parents say that to you? Parents, have you ever said that to your kids? If you would just have listened to me. Our passage today is one of these huge, if you would have just listened to me moments of God with Israel. If you would have just listened, because all the way back, into Ab- to, all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God has promised that he would deliver a good land to his people. And this promise is repeated several times between Genesis and Numbers here. For example, Exodus 3, 17, this is God speaking. He says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land that flows with milk and honey. I promise. And even here in our passage, look at how it begins in verse 2. It says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Again, God speaking. If you would just listen and obey me, the promised land is yours. Now, to get to the promised land, it was always going to be a military undertaking. There's people there, they were evil people, and so Yahweh has promised that he would give it to them, but there was a military undertaking, so what they had to do, Yahweh says, send some scouts out, check out the land, see if the cities are strong, see if there's good fruit, but check out the land. However, Yahweh reminds them that he was giving it to them. All they had to do was receive it as a gift. But what ensues in this chapter is nothing short of a disaster. They don't enter the promised land. So there's a lot that's going on in this passage, and it's like this big, long drama. And so this morning I want to look at it in terms of three acts, three acts of this drama. The first is an insurrection. The second is an intercession, and the third is an indictment. So we're going to look at an insurrection, an intercession, and an indictment. So let's get our first point this morning, the first act in this account, an insurrection. So Israel is on the edge of the promised land. It's inhabited by the Canaanites, but they're on the edge of it. So even though God has promised them the land is theirs, he instructs Moses to put together this task force of spies to go scout out the land. And they were to bring back a report of the land, the people that live there, and to bring back a sample of the fruit. And so a representative from each tribe, the 12 tribes, were chosen, and they go about their task. And so for 40 days, they spend time in Canaan. And they were safe. They weren't harmed. They were there. They were to check out the fruit. They saw how fruitful it was. And we didn't read it, but in verse 23, it says that the land was so fruitful that a bundle of grapes was so large they had to put it on a pole and two men had to carry it. 
That's how fruitful the land was. They couldn't hold a bundle of grapes. It was every bit as good as it was advertised. However, the grapes were not the only huge thing in the land. It says that the cities were large, that they were strongly fortified, and the people there looked like giants to them, like the Nephilim from Genesis 6. And they come back to Moses and the people, and they delivered the report of what they saw. They said, the land is indeed good. It does flow with milk and with honey. However, we then get two different reports from two groups of people. We have a majority report and a minority report. All but two of the spies came back and they focused on how big the people were, how strong the cities were, how could we hope to defeat these people? And in verse 33, we see their fear come out when they say, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. That's what we're like. We look at ourselves and we think we are grasshoppers and we know that they think that we're grasshoppers too. The smallest little creature. But then there was another assessment of the situation. Caleb and Joshua, they saw the exact same thing that the other spies saw, but they had a completely different take on the situation. Caleb blurts out in verse 30, he says, let's go on, let's take possession of the land. We're definitely able to do it. And so the difference between Caleb and Joshua and all the other spies is that they knew that Yahweh was with them. With God, they could do it. This is the God that parted the Red Sea. This is the God that gave them manna from heaven, that gave them water out of a rock. And if he had brought them all this way, certainly would he just leave them on the doorstep? He wouldn't do that. Chapter 14, verse 8 says, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. And then in verse 9, he says, The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He's like, we have a secret weapon. We might be grasshoppers, but we have Yahweh with us. And so what's the difference here between these two reports? the report of the majority, and the report of the minority. And it's simple for us. One group has faith, and the other is filled with unbelief. One group accounted for Yahweh, and the other did not. You see, Joshua and Caleb, they saw these people as obstacles that God would overcome, just as he always had. That's the story of Israel, is God overcoming the obstacles for them. To quote Ian Duguid, who I quoted so much last time, giants may seem enormous from the perspective of the grasshoppers, but comparing them with the power of the Almighty tends to cut them down to size. So how often do you and I do this? How often do we come across obstacles or difficulties or that we just feel puny like grasshoppers? You know, our lives are filled with all sorts of challenges that many that we can do absolutely nothing about. However, this is God's world. No matter how dire a situation seems, His purposes are going to always prevail. And so if God strengthens us, we can get through any situation. But back in our passage, the situation gets worse than this. After hearing all these reports, all of Israel complains, and they start this uprising and insurrection against Moses and Aaron. And they all say it would have been better if we would have just stayed as slaves in Egypt rather than being free men led by Yahweh to the promised land. And so they start preparing to get new leaders and then go back to Egypt. And it got to the point where they were ready to stone to death Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. And so leading up to this chapter, Israel is constantly complaining. They're constantly grumbling against God, against their leaders. And they've taken it a step further this time. They're getting ready to kill them. And they would have done it. 
but God intervenes. And more on this in our third point. But God has had it with them. And what God says, I'm going to strike them down. I'm going to disinherit them as a result of their rebellion. It's gloom. It's dark in Israel. And in the first act of this drama, we have this rebellion, this insurrection of the people of Israel against its leaders, against Yahweh because of their unbelief. And it's totally irrational, right? Their unbelief. They've seen what all God has done. And yet they think he's going to leave them out here. They think that he's going to let them get crushed by the Canaanites. Let's look at our second point this morning, an intercession And so Moses hears God's response, and he has a response of his own. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible, right before this verse of chapter 13, or sorry, verse 13 of chapter 14, it titles it, Moses intercedes for the people. And so he intervenes, and he speaks to God on behalf of the people. The people that want to kill him, let me remind you, he speaks on behalf of them, and he asks Yahweh to not forsake them, to not give up on them, and he makes an appeal to God based on two things. He says, forgive them based off of these two things, because of your glory, God, and because of your mercy. Okay? So in regards to God's glory, we can see it in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 14. And Moses says that if God were to kill them now, all the nations would think that he was unable to bring the people into the land, and his glory would be diminished. He says that you've done this, you've always been with Israel, and if you abandon them, if you kill them now, everyone's going to think that you couldn't do it, that you were not able to do it. And then Moses pleads for the people on the basis of God's merciful nature in verses 17 to 19. In fact, he actually quotes God's own description of himself from Exodus 34. He says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And so this is such an interesting response because it highlights two things about God. He's a God of mercy, but our God is also a God of justice. And that builds up to our third point, so more on that in just a moment. But these two things should factor heavily in our own prayers. As sinners, we should always be appealing to God's mercy, always being appealing to His merciful character. But I want to make mention really quickly of this idea of appealing to God's glory. If we were to do this more, if we were to appeal to God's glory more, it would totally reshape the way that we pray for ourselves and the way that we pray for other people. It's actually an outworking of what we profess to believe in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so when we pray, we pray for the nations to come to Him because it increases God's glory. When we pray for our churches, we pray that it would more fully proclaim His glory. We pray for victory over sin so that we can glorify Him more and delight in Him more. So everything that we do is to the glory of God. But praying in the light of God's glory also affects us when our prayers are not answered in the way that we want them to be answered. If God is more glorified through my suffering or my weakness or my failure, then my prayer has been answered even through those things. As one writer says, it says, If God is my master who does all things for my good as well as for his glory, then I can know that he has a glorious purpose in even the most inglorious circumstances in my life. It changes the way that we pray. It changes the way that we view our circumstances and our situations. And so Moses intercedes for the people based on those two things, God's glory and his mercy. Let's look at our last point this morning, an indictment. This is where it gets really tough. 
The third act begins with God responding to Moses and he lays down an indictment, a judgment on Israel. As we mentioned just a minute ago, God is a merciful God, but he's also a just God. And so his answer is one that confirms this. He says, I will pardon the sins of Israel. I'll pardon them. But then he goes on to carry out justice against them, that he's going to punish them. And this is where it gets really difficult because we see on one hand, God having mercy, but then on the other hand, he carries out this punishment. And so one thing is clear here though, is that God's mercy does not negate his justice with Israel. And so he lays down several things, several judgments. First, he agrees, I'm going to continue my relationship with you. You're going to go to the promised land. You're going to make it. I'm going to be faithful to you to see you to the promised land. But there's a but there. However, it's not for everyone. It's not everyone. With the exception of Caleb and Joshua, he says anyone that is 20 years old or older would not enter the promised land. And so the irony here is that God gives them exactly what they asked for as a punishment. In verse 25, he says, you want to go to Egypt? So be it. The next part of your journey is going to be back towards the Red Sea. Verse 29, he says, you'd rather die in the wilderness than enter? Well, so be it. You won't enter it, and you will die in the wilderness. You are so worried that by entering Canaan, your children become slaves? Well, they're going to get to taste the freedom of the land. While you die in the wilderness over a 40-year period, one year for every day that you were there, one year for every day that you were in the land scouting it out. And so we see one more judgment. It comes in verse 37. The members of the scouting party that had brought the bad report, they were struck down and they were killed by a plague. Y'all see what I mean when I say that this is a tough passage? When I was first preparing this earlier in the week, I texted two friends of mine. I said, why does it bother me so much that God killed the spies? Does that bother you? That he killed the spies? And the reason it bothered me so much was because if God is a just God, then how can any of us have hope? If that's really his nature, what hope do we have? But here's the thing about these people. Here's the thing about Israel. It's time and time again they turned to other gods, they turned to other idols, they complained, they disobeyed, and time and time again Yahweh has mercy on us, or not us, on them. But we also skipped a lot in Numbers. We've only done two sermons on it. There's a whole lot of bad that they've done that we have not seen. And so we don't want to sugarcoat it, but these were people who had utterly rejected God on several occasions. Whereas Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham and it says by faith he went into the land. These people are not listed there. They had no faith. What they had was unbelief. And so we can see from this passage that their hearts were not transformed by their experience with God's mercy. They had experienced God's mercy and it did nothing for them. Their hearts remained unbelieving. Verse 39 tells us that they were mourned and they were very sorry but they were not repentant. They were very sorry for what their sin had brought about. They, they, they were sorry for the effects of their sin, but not for the sin itself. And verse 40 to 45 illustrates this so well. It says, after this pronouncement of judgment, they're mourning it. The very next thing they do is they disobey God again. Right after this is said. In verse 25, they're told to go back towards the Red Sea. 
But in verse 40, they decide to disobey and try to take Canaan out of their own strength. Moses even tells them, he says, don't do it. God's not with you. You will die. And they say, we're going to do it anyway. And so in one last act of defiance, they do it anyway, and they're crushed. And so these are a people who refused to enter the land out of unbelief. Then they tried to enter the land out of unbelief. Everything about their life is characterized by unbelief. And so that's God's indictment on Israel for their unbelief is that you will not enter the promised land and you will die in the wilderness. It's tough. It's harsh. And so what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for our sin? How often have I been unbelieving towards God? Is there any hope that we can garner for us out of this passage? I think there's two things that we can take away from this passage. The first is that we need to take this very seriously as a warning to ourselves. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says in verse 5, he says, with most of, he's talking about this event here in the wilderness. He's talking about numbers. He's talking about Exodus. Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verses 11 and 12, now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a warning for us. We no longer rely on our own strength. It's a warning that we no longer take ability of ourselves to take matters into our own hands. And so we, so often we fear man. We fear man more than God. And we should rest in God. And so I'm drawn back to what Israel, what God has told Israel all the way back from Exodus 14, 14, when he says, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. These are people who try to take matters into their own hands. So let's take this as a warning. Let's stand on God's word, not on our own ability. But the second thing that I want us to see this morning is that we need to lean into the faithfulness of God. A question that we should ask in response to this passage is how long is God going to keep putting up with his people Israel? How long is he going to keep putting up with them? And the answer to that question is however long it takes. God is going to be faithful to them however long it takes to accomplish his purposes. He will not abandon them however long it takes. And so this is incredibly good news for us this morning, for you and for me, because we so often fail to obey God. We trust in our own selves. We so often try to do things out of our own strength without God's presence. And we so often say, I'll come to you, God, after I fix myself without your help. We pursue our careers, we raise our kids, we worry about bills, we craft our lives based off of the world's standards. And so the reason why God's judgment on the Israelites bothers us so much is because we know that we've done exactly what they have done, and we're equally deserving of God's wrath and judgment. But here's the beauty in that, y'all. If you, if you haven't heard anything at all this morning, hear this. That's not what God has given us. God's mercy and his faithfulness are greater than even our stubborn and persistent sins. What basis do I have for saying this? Because as we said all morning, God is a merciful God and he is a just God. And we see the intersection of justice and mercy on the cross. 
God has taken our faithlessness, he's taken our failings, and he's placed them on Jesus. And so Jesus, he lived a perfect life. He obeyed every iota of the law. He fulfilled the law. And he didn't do this for himself, but he did this for those as a representative that were united with him through faith. Through Jesus' life, the righteous requirement of the law was met. Through Jesus' death, God's justice was satisfied and his mercy was given to rebels. So we see at the cross justice being carried out as well as mercy. And so there's a call to each and every person, to each one of us in this room, to say what the tax collector said in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so this is a free offer. There's no strings attached to this. It's open to each and every single person. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much you have failed. The story of Christianity is that you can't win the battle for yourself, so Jesus wins it for you. And so if this is true, if this is true that Jesus achieves victory on our behalf, what then do we have to fear in this life? If Jesus has secured victory on our behalf, what can tear us down? Even giants are no match for the God of grasshoppers. And so let's pray that God would rid us of our unbelief, that we'd be consumed with his glory, consumed with his mercy. And so in a moment, we're going to sing a most appropriate response. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And the third verse says this. It says, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. And so if you're in Christ this morning, there's a promised land that awaits for you. A land that's way better than Canaan. But so long as we pilgrim through this life, Jesus makes the pilgrimage with you. He sustains you. And he knows the way because he's already done it. He's already won. He's completed it. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know this faithfulness of God? This faithfulness that exceeds even our sin? Do you trust that he will put off all your anxious worries and that he'll deliver you to your promised land? Let's pray. Father, we confess that this is a tough passage when we wonder grace and justice. But Father, we thank you that on this side of the cross, we can see that our representative has won the battle for us. We thank you that it's through faith alone, not our own doings, not our actions, not our thoughts, not our lack of sin. We thank you that it's through faith that you have saved us. We thank you that that faith is even a gift in and of itself. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to lead us as we pilgrim through this life. Father, show us these warnings. Help us to be able to say, like that Father, we believe, help our unbelief. And so, Father, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.